open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to meet together, to gather, to hear from your word, to hear from you. Lord, we pray that uh, you would just give us clarity and unity, and we pray that um, you would just give us insight by your spirit as we learn today. And we thank you for your grace, and amen. So today we are continuing our series called the GCF Vision. The vision, or the GCF vision, is a term we use a lot, uh, but we haven't had a thorough teaching on it in a while, or at least not since Greg was teaching at RCF. Uh, So I'm going to be doing this series to try to explain concisely, yet thoroughly, what exactly the GCF vision is. So our, our vision, or the GCF vision, is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And at the core, I would say there's five of them. The first one, uh, and I did slightly change the wording of these uh, this week, but the first one is having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. The second one is being grace-based instead of performance-based. The third one is being reformed and charismatic, which is the one we're going to be talking about today, or starting to talk about today. The fourth one, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And the fifth one, having a victorious eschatology. So I'm not saying that there are no churches that have these things. There certainly are churches that have these things. Um, And there's plenty of churches that do well at these things, but... A number of churches might do well at one or two, and other churches might do well at a different one or two, but very few churches have all five of these qualities. But I believe that by God's grace, the church will rediscover and restore these things, and that over the next few decades, it's going to become more and more common to have all five of these qualities. So the The GCF vision is a vision of restoration. We believe that the early church had all five of these aspects and that God wants to restore these to his church. And therefore, we are seeking to rediscover and restore these aspects of biblical Christianity in our own lives, and we hope to model them for others. I really do want to emphasize that it's very, it's important that we we all get the vision. Uh, If anyone would consider themselves a member of GCF, it's important that we all get the vision. I want to look at Philippians 1 verse 27 and 2 verse 2. Uh, Paul speaking to the Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. So it's, it's good, it's helpful for a local church to be unified in their goal. It's helpful for everyone to be working towards the same thing. And I'm hoping that this series helps with that. So um, if you would like to know the vision deeper, if you miss any of these sermons, please go back and re-listen to them, or if you don't catch the whole thing, uh, there's a reason we record everything. It's why our website exists. So today we are starting a new subsection of this series, 
uh, called The Strengths of Reformed Churches. So today we're starting to talk about being reformed and charismatic. That's one of the things we believe that uh, the church needs to restore. So I was thinking about how to talk about being reformed and charismatic and how to best explain it. So I decided I'm going to have a subsection called The Strengths of Reformed Churches, then we'll have another subsection called The Strengths of Charismatic Churches, and then we'll have a third one where we talk about the synergy and the strengths that you only get from having both together. But anyways, today we are starting to talk about the strengths of Reformed churches. So what do I mean by Reformed? Um, so I wrote a little example to kind of explain why I'm going to describe it this way. I'm going to describe Reformed and Charismatic, for that matter, using a list of attributes. So if you were trying to explain uh, to someone who isn't American what the difference between pop music and rock music is, you wouldn't be able to do it in one sentence because there's no single objective criteria that makes music rock or that makes music pop. It's more of a list of attributes that rock tends to have or that pop tends to have. And, uh, and I feel that it's the same way with Reformed church culture and charismatic church culture. In a certain sense, they're church cultures, and you can't really describe them in one sentence. It's much easier to describe them with a list of attributes. So there's uh, four or so qualities um, that I would think of when I think of a Reformed church, and these will be what we look at as the strengths of a Reformed church. So those are having an emphasis on the five solas, having a biblical view of predestination and election, holding to covenant theology rather than dispensationalism, and placing a high priority on regularly and thoroughly studying God's word. So we're going to look at each of these uh, in some detail. Uh, each one might get its own sermon. But today we're just going to talk about having an emphasis on the five solas. We're going to look at that further. All right, so what are the five solas? The five solas are a tool that people use to attempt to summarize Reformed theology. Uh, sola is Latin for only. So these are five statements, very short statements, um, a few words each, that are used to summarize Reformed theology that you know, came out of the era of the Reformation in the 1500s. And they are uh, solo scri sola scriptura, or Scripture alone, solas Christas, or Christ alone, sola fide, or faith alone, sola gratia, or grace alone, and soli deo gloria, or to the glory of God alone. So, let's get into it. Let's start with sola scriptura. So, Scripture alone is the idea that God's word is our chief authority in the Christian life. Sola Scriptura, or Scripture alone, is the idea that the Scripture is our chief authority in the Christian life. Notice I didn't say the only authority. We'll, we'll get into why in a second. So the Bible is the Word of God, and therefore it necessarily has the authority of God. Let's look at 2 Timothy 2, 3.16. 
Oh, there it is. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The thing I want to point out here is all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is from God. It's God's word. If it's God's word, it has the authority of God behind it. To disobey scripture is to disobey God. And let's also look at 2 Peter 1 Uh, Verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So again, the Scripture is the Word of God. And being the Word of God necessarily has the authority of God. But the Bible is not our only authority because the Bible commands us to submit to other authorities. And um, out of all the other authorities it commands us to submit to, I just want to look at two of them in particular. Um, The first one being the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit will speak to us. The Bible teaches us to expect that, that the Holy Spirit's going to speak to us. And the Holy Spirit being God, we have to listen to him. Let's look at uh, how the Bible teaches us to expect that the Holy Spirit will speak to us. Let's look at John 16, verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Let's look at Acts 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Let's look at Acts 16, verse 6. And when they went through the region of... Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So, you know, this is Paul and those who he was traveling with. The Holy Spirit directed them to not go to Asia at that time to speak the gospel because he had a different assignment for them. Let's look at Acts 20, verses 22 and 23. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And lastly, let's look at Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I think the scriptures make it pretty clear that we should expect the Holy Spirit to guide us, to speak to us. We should be looking for that. So God gives us the scripture to guide us, but we can't only focus on the scripture as if it's the only thing he gave us to guide us in the Christian life. We also need to look to the Holy Spirit. God also gave us the church, and he gives the church authority. Let's look at Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, 
For they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the Bible is not our only authority because it commands us to submit to other authorities. But the Bible is our chief authority because it's our standard for knowing God's will. The Bible teaches us to expect the Holy Spirit to speak to us, but the Bible is how we discern the voice of the Holy Spirit from other spirits. How many people uh, have heard someone say, God told me this, and you immediately think to yourself, that's ridiculous. There's no way God told you that. How many people have uh, in the past thought that God told them something, and then later on, sooner or later, nope, that was not God. I think that's happened to everyone. The scriptures are the, they help us to discern between the Holy Spirit and other spirits, and the whole, between the Holy Spirit and our own thoughts. So that's one way in which the Bible is our chief authority because it's the standard by which we know God's will most clearly. Not only that, but uh, so we're to obey church authority, but not if it goes against God's word. We need to measure uh, what church authority tells us against God's word, and God's word always wins. Let's look at Acts 5, 27 through 29. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. That is, to teach in Jesus' name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. If ever um, any spiritual authority or any church leader tells you something that contradicts the Scriptures, you stick to the Scriptures. Let's look at Mark 7, uh, 9-13. And Jesus said to them, or Jesus said to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever refiles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever, I would, whatever you would have gained from me is corbane, or that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So, you know, this can be a real problem. This is kind of why sola scriptura became an emphasis in the Reformation, because this was a big problem in the Roman Catholic Church. So the scriptures are our chief authority in the Christian life. But one thing I want to say about this, out of all the five sola statements, I think this one has the most potential for uh, misinterpretations or kind of being taken the wrong way. And that's why I say the, the scriptures are our chief authority. They are not our only authority. The scriptures plainly say that there are other authorities over us in the Christian life. 
but it can be easy to misinterpret this and get the idea that we don't need or would never benefit from help in interpreting the scriptures. You know, God sent Philip uh, to the Ethiopian to help him interpret the scriptures. We need help interpreting the scriptures sometimes. Or we might be tempted to fall for the idea that, uh, you know, because we have God's word, we don't need counsel from other believers or church leaders. But the scriptures say that in a multitude of counselors is victory. Or we might get tempted to think, because we have the scriptures, we might get tempted to forget about the day-to-day guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's a big problem. Sadly, it's a common problem. So we need to remember that God's word is the chief authority in the Christian life, but we still need the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and we still need the church. So that's sola scriptura. The next one of the five solas that we're going to look at is solus Christus, or Christ alone. Christ alone is the idea that only Christ can make us righteous before God. We cannot make ourselves right or acceptable before God, and neither can anyone else. This is a very important idea, because without this, we don't have the gospel. Uh, let's look at some verses that make this one clear. Let's look at 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. No one else can appease the wrath of God for us. It's not just that we can't appease the wrath of God by good works. No one else can either. But sometimes we get tempted to fall for that subtly. Let's look at John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then let's look at Acts 4, verses 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Part of the reason this became an emphasis on the Reformation is because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, can mediate between God and man. And that's not true. Only Jesus can mediate between God and man. And sadly, uh, a number of Christians today get tempted to fall for the idea that Jesus isn't the only way. That, you know, all roads lead to Jesus That's not true. Or all roads lead to the Father. Only Jesus leads to the Father. You can only be right with God through Christ. But we get tempted subtly to let errors creep in. We get tempted in very subtle ways to not press this out. You know, sometimes it's easy to think, well, I have a good standing with God because I attend a radical church. Or I have a good standing with God because I listen to good preachers. You know, that's a temptation for people to believe. I've heard people say it. But that type of thinking is fleshly. It's relying on the flesh for your standing before God. But it so subtly creeps in. 
only Christ can give you a good standing before God. If you start to rely on the fact that uh, you attend a certain church or listen to certain people for your standing before God, you might have a bad standing before God because only Christ can give you a good standing before God. So the next one of the five solas that we're going to look at is sola fide, or faith alone. Faith alone is the idea that we receive forgiveness of sins through faith alone and not through any works that we can do. And again, this is important because without this, we don't have the gospel. Let's look at Galatians 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Let's look at Romans 4, verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul is contrasting these two things because the person who seeks to work for righteousness doesn't obtain righteousness. Let's look at Galatians 3, verses 5 through 11. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by carrying with faith? Just as Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that those of faith, it, it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So it's, you know, it's pretty clear that we receive forgiveness through faith alone. You can't receive forgiveness through good works. The only way to receive forgiveness, forgiveness is by trusting in Christ. But I do want to point out, even though we receive forgiveness by faith and not by works, the Bible clearly teaches that a faith that doesn't have works or that doesn't lead to works, that doesn't inspire you to seek to follow God in your everyday life, that's not a genuine faith. That's a fake uh, profession of faith. It's not real. And it won't lead to forgiveness. Let's look at James 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, 
without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And also, it's, um, you know, in First John, the first epistle of John, he talks a lot about this sort of thing. Let's look at First John 3, verse 9. No one born of God, that is, no one born again, makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So we receive fruit forgiveness by faith. But a faith that doesn't lead to works isn't genuine faith. So that is uh, faith alone. The next one we're going to look at is sola gratia, or grace alone. Grace alone is the idea that we are saved by grace without meriting salvation in any way whatsoever. Not even a pinch of merit. Not a, an atom or a particle of merit gets added to our salvation. It is only grace. Let's look at Romans 3, verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's look at Galatians 2, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And then... Paul starts to get even more explicit about the importance of relying on grace alone, um, of trusting in Christ that your salvation is by grace and not that you merit any of it. Let's look at Galatians 3, verses 1 through 6, and then verse 10. Well, I'm going to give some context for this first. So in the Galatian church, they had some heresy going around. And that heresy was the idea that you had to receive Christ, but you also had to be circumcised. You had to do both to be saved. So you needed grace, but you needed a grace plus a, a little bit of works. You needed a little bit of merit. And Paul said that they had abandoned the gospel, if they believed that. So he says in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit and do works and miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. And then let's also look at Galatians 5, verses 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage, no benefit to you. 
I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So we need to be very clear uh, with ourselves and in our own beliefs that we did not merit salvation in the least in any way whatsoever. There is not a single thing we did by which we have merited salvation. There is no work we could ever do. It is only God's grace by which we are saved. Let's look at Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So that's a good verse to transition to a second point I want to make about grace and how salvation is strictly by grace. Not only do we not deserve forgiveness of sins, but the very faith by which we receive forgiveness is a gift of grace. We would not have faith if it weren't for God. Because frankly, none of us wanted to receive Christ. The reason none of us wanted to receive Christ is because receiving Christ means giving up our pride and giving up being Lord of our lives. And none of us would be willing to do that. None of us were willing to do that before God worked in our hearts by his Spirit. Let's look at 2 Peter uh, 1 verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he uses the word received here. But in the ESV, it says obtained. So I wanted to look into that for further clarity. So I was looking it up on Blue Letter Bible. The word that uh, gets translated received in the NASB, but obtained in the ESV, is the uh, word um, lagchano, or lagkano. Uh, so I've got a slide for that. Oh, what happened to the projector? Huh. Oh, well, hopefully it comes up. But um, I was kind of surprised to find the definition of the word lagkano because it's, it's a word that gets used uh, to describe when a person receives something by casting lots. So it's, it's kind of like a word picture, the way Peter is using it, to very clearly show this is something you received from God. It's used to show that something was received divinely. Oh, well, we'll give up on that slide. But you can look it up yourself. Blue Letter Bible is free. Maybe. Oh, there we go. Yeah. So, outline of biblical usage. To obtain by lot, to receive by div divine allotment, 
or to cast lots or determine by lot. So I was kind of surprised that that was the, uh, the definition of it. But I think Peter uses that word just to show clearly this faith is something you received from God. But let's look at some other verses that make the point clear. Let's look at Philippians 1 verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. So it was granted to us to believe in Christ. Let's also look at um, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only to Jesus, the originator and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The originator of our faith. Jesus is, and some translations say, author. But Jesus originated our faith. It wasn't us. Let's look at John 6, verse 44. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. That's because none of us wanted to receive Christ. None of us liked the idea of admitting that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves and submitting our lives to God and doing what he wants us to do. None of us wanted to do that. It's possible that some of us still don't. Our faith is a gift of grace, so salvation is entirely by God's grace. There's not a single ounce or gram of merit in it. So grace alone uh, logically leads to the idea of to the glory of God alone, or soli deo gloria, which is Latin for to, to God's glory alone. So to the glory of God alone is the idea that we are saved, you know, to the glory of God alone. And that our salvation does not give us any room or reason to boast or brag about what we have done, but rather only to glorify God for what he has done for us. So there's a, a few points I want to talk about in reference to this idea of to the glory of God alone. Uh, our salvation is for God's glory. Let's look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, this statement, to the praise of his glory, is going to come up three different times in reference to our salvation. So this is the first one. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then let's skip on ahead to verses 11 through 14. In him, or in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. We are saved, and our salvation is for God's glory. Let's look at Psalms uh, 106, verses 6 through 8. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. So our salvation is for God's glory. And we'll... We'll explain that in more detail uh, sometime in the next few weeks when we look in detail about having a biblical view of predestination and an election. So our salvation is for God's glory. That's the first point I wanted to make with uh, solo deo gloria. But the second thing I want us to look at is that God saving us does not give us any room to boast in ourselves. That's another aspect of us being saved to the glory of God alone. God saving us does not give us any room to boast in ourselves. Let's look at Romans 3, verses 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Then let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, verses 28 and 29. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So we can't boast about uh, being forgiven of our sins because we didn't earn it. But we also can't boast about having faith or I trusted in Christ. It was by God's grace. You wouldn't have done it if it was up to you. If the Father didn't draw you, you would have never trusted Christ. That's not something we can boast about. There is no room for boasting except in Christ. We can brag about what Christ did in a way that glorifies him, but we have no room to boast about anything we've done in regards to our salvation. And let's uh, lastly look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
So our salvation is for God's glory, and God saving us does not leave us any room or reason to boast in ourselves. But I do want to point out that doesn't mean we can't feel good about ourselves or that you have to just feel, well, I'm just a worthless sinner. There's nothing good about me. You know, low is me. That's not the attitude we have to have as Christians. Why is that? God has placed his love on you in spite of your sin. If you're a Christian, you have great reason to feel good. Uh, not because of what you've done. There's no good reason to feel good about ourselves because of what we've done, but because God, what, God's placed his love on you, and it is such a great love and affection that it drove him to gladly be willing to die. That's reason why we can feel good. So the fact that we have no room to boast doesn't mean we have to mope around, oh, I'm so lowly and worthless. That's not true. God's love gives us great worth. In fact, learning to be effectively humble has to do with learning to find satisfaction in God's love rather than satisfaction in what you do. The greatest problem with pride is that we want it. It'd be easy to be humble if we wanted to be humble. The problem with pride is that it looks fun. But if you were getting your enjoyment from God's love, you wouldn't be tempted to seek that enjoyment in, oh, I, I accomplished this, I accomplished that, me this, me that. Humility or effective humility is about learning to find satisfaction in God's love. So our salvation is for God's glory, and God's saving us does not leave us any room to boast in ourselves. And it's important that we understand this because uh, understanding that God saved us for his glory helps us to stay God-centered rather than becoming man-centered. So in conclusion, uh, having an emphasis on the five solas is uh, one of the strengths of Reformed churches, and it is something uh, we should emulate. Each of the five solas is important, and it's important that we understand them and teach them. You know, so Scripture alone is a safeguard against error. The idea that Scripture is our chief uh, authority in the Christian life is a safeguard against, um, you know, misinterpreting the Holy Spirit or listening to church leaders when they get off track. Christ alone. Without that, we don't even have the gospel. And the same for faith alone and grace alone. Without those, we don't have the gospel. Those are tools that help us to stay on track with knowing what the gospel is and not watering down the gospel or not losing the gospel. And to the glory of God alone helps us stay God-centered instead of man-centered. And it's easy to become man-centered when you don't have um, any thought of salvation being for God's glory. It's kind of the natural outworking of it to become man-centered if you don't think about salvation being for God's glory. But anyways, let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to be together, to learn from your word. We pray that you would help us to become a reformed and charismatic church, to have, to have the strengths of reformed churches and to also have the strengths of charismatic churches, Lord. We pray that we would grow in knowledge of your word and we would grow in the gifts of the spirit and we would grow in intimacy with you. Uh, we pray that you would empower us in this and we thank you for your grace and amen.